This is hell. The future ain't what it used to be, and apparently, the past ain't either. This is hell, and we are starting this week by discussing the past 200 million years of human evolution, so no big deal. It turns out being male or female is about a lot more than only sex organs, and in taking that first step in understanding what it means to be sexed, we can have a much better understanding of women as in the female form. According to today's guest, you can also attain that better understanding when you consider 200 million years of evolution. That is, if you believe in that kind of thing. So again, no big deal. The problems with our understanding of women starts at the beginning, as in the very beginning, as in the book of Genesis, which explains the origins of, of life as coming from one woman, Eve. But as our guest argues, there was never a single Eve. In fact, we don't know all of the Eves yet who contributed to the evolution of us, their descendants. But by considering those many Eves, we can not only have a better understanding of women, but all of humanity writ large. Keeping in mind that I did horribly in biology classes, in a few minutes we will be speaking with researcher, scholar, writer, and according to her website, freak Kat Bohannon, author of Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Kat is a researcher and author with a PhD from Columbia University in the evolution of narrative and cognition. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Scientific American, Science, Mind, The Best American Non-Required Reading, Laugham's Quarterly, The Georgia Review, Poets Against the War, and On the Story Collider. Eve is her first book and a New York Times bestseller. You can follow Kat on Twitter, at Kat Bohannon, and find out more about Kat, including her most recent essays, at katbohannon.com. I just thought of another question for Kat. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how are you? How was your weekend? Uh, weekend was all right. Pretty low key. Caught some football. Developed a pinched nerve somewhere in my back, neck, shoulder area. So, all in all, a good time. No, that sounds like a blast. Yeah. Really, I have a horrible cramp in my left hand because of my bursa sac exploding in my left elbow. Sure, that's and so that's still giving you trouble. Yeah, I haven't had it drained yet, and I don't even know if my doctor wants to drain it. So we can sit here and complain about all of our ailments. This we morning. could. I mean, we are kind of talking about bodies today. So. Oh, that's a good point. Very yeah. good point. Evolution, by the way, has not worked out well for me. No, it's I just got the. <laughs> Sure, I think I'm one of those dead ends. I think so, you know? too. Uh, my neurological issue that leads to me being legally blind, uh, yeah, I, I've decided I'm not going to pass that on. That's <laughs> <laughs> just going to be on me. So my weekend was the first time I spent the entire weekend at home with my kind of wife since before winter officially began. It was our first weekend at home, alone, in six weeks, and it was a blast. We had plans to go out as it's restaurant week here in Chicago, but we put them off because we were having such a great time just hanging out, talking, catching up, enjoying each other's company, getting drunk while playing dominoes until 3 in the morning. Despite spending a lot of my time working this weekend, it was a very enjoyable, relaxing, fun time, was had by all, 
And by all, I mean me. By the way, real quick shout out to Big Jones in Andersonville over on Clark Street. They have been uh, featured as one of the best places to go for Restaurant Week. And the owner of uh, Big Jones, a big supporter of the show and a listener, Mark, thank you very much for everything that you have done for the show. So uh, if you are looking for something to do during Chicago Restaurant Week, check out Big Jones in the Andersonville neighborhood. But more important than me enjoying my weekend or Chicago Restaurant Week, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, as posted on our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page by listener Jen D, which mega rich person would you eat first? (laughs) At tip to the dead Kennedys, I think. Uh, The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins the choice of whatever this is hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can give us your answer to this week's question from hell, and we will read it on air. All you have to do is post your answer under the announcement of this week's question at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole, which is where Jen posted this week's question from hell for the listening audience. Uh, it's not as throttled by Facebook as Facebook is, uh, our regular page on Facebook is, so if you do want to follow us on Facebook, I strongly suggest you join the 800-plus people who are at the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. You can direct message it to us via X at This Is Hell Radio, uh, which is also heavily throttled as we have over 8,000 followers, yet only 100 or so can actually see our posts. Or you can leave your answer to uh, are in our Discord community or on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell and the best ways to stay on top of what's happening on the show really our Patreon, Discord or the Welcome to Hellhole group page because we've been the victims of corporate cancel culture since the show began before they were even calling it a cancel culture. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and Will has this week's Hangover Cure, a two-pager. I it is a two-pager, just barely, though. Yeah. Um, so this week's Hangover Cure is cantaloupe. <laughs> I like uh, the one-word Hangover Cures. Yeah. Um, Forbes Health posted a story with the headline, How to Cure a Hangover, Expert Back Tips by Kimberly Dawn Newman. Forbes. Forbes. What the hell's going on over Forbes? Newman writes, A recent review of hangover treatments in addiction also found that out of 21 placebo-controlled studies looking at purported hangover cures such as clove extract, red ginseng, and Korean pear juice, there was only very low-quality evidence showing any of them actually work. And those are, have all been hangover cures we've suggested on this sure. show. Probably multiple times. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, however... Uh, Newman adds, pumping fluids is one of the first steps to take towards helping your body recover. Pumping fluids is kind of gross sounding. (laughs) Uh, If you entered a hangover, if you've entered hangover territory, chances are you're also pretty dehydrated. Newman then notes Sally K. Norton, a nutrition expert and author of Toxic Superfoods, offering the rehydration option of cantaloupe. Norton explains, Cantaloupe contains high water content, which can help rehydrate the body and combat dehydration. It also provides vitamins and minerals, such as vitamin C and potassium, which can support overall health and replenish nutrients that may be depleted after alcohol consumption. Newman concludes by reminding us that while while there are many hypothesized cures for a hangover, 
the only one proven to be effective is time. That makes this week's hangover cure cantaloupe. But nothing really works like last week's hangover cure, which was time. By the way, uh, hangover territory, that's right between the east and west coasts. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's uh, Wisconsin, isn't it? It is, exactly. <laughs> so you also may remember that last week, uh, well, not only did we mention that the hangover cure last week was time, as we were kind of reinforcing this week, but you may also remember that last week we got an email at chuck at com from Luke at something called Collective Mess in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which Luke described as a fledgling 501c3 nonprofit organization providing free vegan meals to anyone that is hungry with no questions asked and no religious prerequisites. Luke then suggested some possible guests for the show. He said he'd love to hear some interviews about food insecurity, now more accurately called food apartheid, according to Luke, coined by Karen Washington, who he says he would love to hear on the show. Food is a human right issue. He'd love to hear that discussed with Michael Fakhri, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, who he thinks would be another great guest. And maybe even veganism, uh, Luke writes. I know you've done some interviews episodes on this, but Peter Singer must or would be phenomenal to hear. It would be an honor if this is hell would throw a little weight, a little of its weight into our corner as well and support us. Thanks for doing what you do, Chuck. It's been such a relief to hear another voice of reason amidst the noise. And I, uh, Luke, if you think I'm a voice of reason, then you've got other issues that are not my problem. But while we'd love to help Luke as he listens to the show and Collective Mess is trying to address food insecurity in southwestern Michigan, Luke did not include any information that we could share with you about the project. Since then, we have learned that Collective Mess is out of a coffee house in South Haven, Michigan called Snake Oil Roasters, which is the current place where Collective Mess is serving its free vegan meals to the public on the third Saturday of every month. The meals are also available for pickup and delivery, so if you do live in the area, you can call up or have them sent to you. You can find out more about uh, by going to snakeoilroasters.com slash collective dash mess. And if getting an email about fighting food insecurity in southwestern Michigan with vegan meals isn't random enough for you, we heard from someone else doing good work in Michigan. Natasha left a comment on our Twitter post for uh, the interview that we did with Ajay uh, Singh Chowdhury last week on the show when he was on to talk about the terrible idea of resilience in the face of climate change as in experts doing studies to determine how much misery humanity can continue to tolerate rather than working on solutions to end the misery we are already experiencing from global warm warming the solutions that uh, do the one thing the resilience folks don't want and that is to challenge capitalism or the status quo so following that talk with ajay and the uh, mention of vegan food insecurity nonprofit collective mess natasha posted about her own group that's doing good in michigan and someone she uh, she uh, mentioned another possible guest on campaigns against food security in Michigan. Natasha writes, We do abolitionist car repair and mutual aid fairs here in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And one of the groups that comes does a free food truck and other food justice work if you want to talk to them. They also have a traveling shower truck now. Now, I have no idea what abolitionist car repair is, but sounds good. She then sends a link to Ipsy, Y-P-S-I, as in Ypsilanti, 
ipsymutualaid.org, and at their website they state, We believe in, as the Zapatista declared, a world in which many worlds fit. In fact, this past New Year's Day was the 30th anniversary of the Zapatista uprising, which continues to this day. But Natasha at the abolitionist car repair shop is not crazy about the guest suggestion made by Luke at the South Haven Vegan Food Insecurity Nonprofit. Natasha writes in all caps, NOT PETER SINGER. So I asked Natasha why, because until Luke mentioned Peter Singer and veganism, I don't think I'd ever heard of him before. If Natasha gets back to us, we will share with you why she demands that we not have Peter Singer on the show, which is fine. But in the meantime, check out South Haven's collective mess at snakeoilroasters.com slash collective dash mess and Ypsilanti, Michigan's mutual aid groups at ipsymutualaid.org. Thanks to Luke and Natasha and everyone across Southern Michigan working on food insecurity and mutual aid. And no matter where you happen to be while listening, if you are involved in providing much needed services to those who are not getting them, tell us where you are and what you're doing. And we'll share with our listeners uh, because it's really important to know that even while this is hell, there are still a lot of people providing the care work that doesn't depend upon profits, which we will likely increase increasingly depend upon, the kind of services we'll likely increasingly depend upon during this age of crises. Coming up, millions of years of biological evolutionary history. Will has our Patreon subscribers answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened on last week's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll have this week in rotten history from Ronaldo Magaldi. We'll also tell you who we have confirmed as guests for the rest of the week. And we have confirmed guests for the rest of the week. Manufacturing descent. Since 1996, this is hell. By studying our past, we can have a much better understanding of our present, as so many of our guests have pointed out. Historical context is necessary when trying to figure out the world around us, an increasingly complicated world around us. But what if we can get a better understanding not only by looking at the most recent history of the last few decades, centuries, or even millennia? What if we understand the world better and the people who live on it better by going back millions of years? And, the base, and start asking the basic questions about life, even our own bodies. And what does that history tell us about who we are and what makes us different and how evolution has influenced the development of women's bodies can shed new light on our understanding of what women were, are, and can be. Here to help us with some really gigantic questions, researcher, scholar, writer, and according to her website, Freak Cat Bohannon is author of Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Welcome to This Is Hell, Cat. Well, hello, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show this week. Uh, you know, we always, obviously, we think about women and how they can reproduce. They reproduce child children. They have, they are capable of childbirth. What happens when we understand women not only as reproducing the population, reproducing through childbirth, but reproducing evolution, that they are the stepping stones in the evolutionary process for all of us? Well, I mean, the first thing to remember, of course, is that not everybody who has a uterus will have 
uh, children, but that we have long evolved to potentially be capable of doing so because of that damn uterus, right? So what that means is that there are huge knock-on effects throughout the body, but the basic, basic thing to remember is, well, these are the bodies that make the babies, that make the babies, that make the babies. This is the actual engine, the fulcrum of evolution. So it's kind of weird that we've so often made females in our ancestral past a side character. Like, where the hell are they? Just like over the hill, pounding some tubers or something while they generate the next generation in their actual bodies. It's cool, though. You know, I guess the guys are really busy. So I think one of the most important things to remember is that... um it's not our destiny to make babies to be fulfilled, but it is true that it's a big deal that we are capable of it, potentially having these female bodies. And it affects every part of our lives from birth forward, including in our immune system. We recently had a discussion with a guest on all of the recent studies that have been showing that hunter-gatherer societies were not uh, delineated by male and female characteristics, male and female jobs. Uh, men weren't the only hunters and women weren't only gatherers. They've, this has been now been proven over and over again for the past oh, 60 yeah. years, over and over. How do you think the way that we view evolution, the way that we understand evolution, leads to the kinds of stereotypes that put people in these kinds of positions where men are seen as only, the only hunters and women are seen as the only gatherers? Oh, well, we all live inside our paradigms, right? And I'm not trying to get all Thomas Kuhn on you, but I mean, like, we all have these frames of understanding. It's, so it's not just the data in front of you, it's how you interpret your data, right? So, for example, there's been a big thing in anthropology lately where we're starting to revisit how we interpret burial sites, right? You've probably heard some of this, right? That you, for a long time, we would see these bones buried with some weapons in any given part of the world from any given moment in human history, but usually somewhere after the Paleolithic, but before things got real cray. Okay. And so you see some bones buried with some weapons and some decorative whatevers, and they would be like, oh, this is definitely like a high status male, you guys, like clearly. And recently we've been going back in and, and doing some testing and we're like, oh crap, that was female, right? So in other words, the bones are in front of you, your obvious data, you couldn't get more obvious data than bones in front of you, but you're interpreting it through that paradigmatic lens. You're th thinking about it in a way that you understand our lives now, right? And it's hard. It's actually really hard to get outside your paradigm. It's very hard to kind of peek around the corner in that way. But I think scientists are doing a really good job working on that right now by saying, okay, wait, what have we been missing? And one of the best places to look is that kind of cultural understanding of things and going back and saying, oh, but what do the numbers actually show? You know, that actually females had a lot of power in a lot of historical societies that we're seeing in this anthropological record. That actually, when you go back and you think back into deep time, right, that 200 million years of mammalian evolution, oh, actually females were massive drivers of a lot of the things that we think this is what makes us human, like bipedalism, like tool use. Like it turns out, for example, that hunting tools were probably more dominantly used by female mammals back in the day. Sorry, not mammals, um, 
our primate ancestors. Like right now, somewhere in Senegal, right? There is a chimp and she's probably got her offspring with her because most female chimps do at some point or another. They're the primary caretakers. And she's made a spear. She's chewed down a branch, a sapling, and made a kind of rudimentary spear, carrying it in one hand going along. She finds a bush baby. This is a very adorable little primate. It's also now her lunch because she's going to stab the thing in the face repeatedly. Actually, anywhere she can stab it, just going to stab stabbing little babies looking on like this is cool this is normal and that's going to be their lunch the males use their hands and teeth more they don't need to put as much distance between themselves and their prey so right so if you think back on where does all of this so-called male stuff you know like hunting tools and whatnot where's this coming from if you remember that in our cousins it's females that are often driving the charge and often teaching the next generation how to do it well, then you have to rethink what hunting looks like even in early human species, right? The basic understanding that people have of evolution, I think the first introduction a lot of people have to it is that image that you often see in a school classroom of a being that's walking on all fours until it generally progresses up to a bipedal creature. In that understanding, that you know, formative understanding of what evolution is, which seems like a smooth, clean line of progression, what are we lacking in our understanding of uh, evolution by looking at such an image? Well, here's one for my lit nerds. Um, evolution isn't a building's roman. It's not a development story. It's not like a young man enters the world and learns some stuff and eventually gets a job. You know, like evolution has got a lot of different characters going on all at once. Evolution is messy and there's a lot of side plots and weird eddies and things that happen that you don't think should matter at first and turn out to like really matter. Like it turns out it really matters where our freaking ureters are inside our bodies. Those are the tubes that go from our kidneys down to our bladder. In uh, marsupials, they go in between a multi-vagina complex, okay? We only have the one vagina. Most marsupials have two or more, which sounds fun, but unfortunately it means they can't give birth to really big babies because it would tear open their ureters on the way out. Not a fun idea, right? So like I'd like an extra vag, like as a coin purse or whatever, like a cigar humidor, I don't know. But like I definitely don't want to tear myself open from the inside giving birth to a bigger baby, right? So like you wouldn't think that would matter like where your tubing is, but it turns out to really matter in evolution. And likewise, all of this is accident. All of this is messy. All of this is nobody's driving this train, right? So that's one of the reasons there are so many Eves, right? It's not just one mother of us all. There are many and accidentally, eventually, you get this poorly constructed thing we call the human body. And we'll get to those many eaves in a little bit. Uh, you not only write about women's importance, obviously, when it comes to reproduction, but their importance in evolution. So why the default to make medical procedures and pharmaceutical prescriptions about male physiology? Why the focus on male bias, the male norm? For, for that matter, why default to either male or female physiology? Why not understand that procedures and prescriptions should differ depending on the parent, the, you know, the uh, patient's physiology, not whether they are male or female. Yeah, so this is a combination of like a 
philosophy of science problem and a um, data problem and a funding problem. They're just some problems. But what your listeners may or may not know is that for a very, very long time in both biology and biomedical science, we've basically only been studying males. Like unless you want to know something about ovaries or the uterus or milk, the chicks just ain't there. Okay. It's just dicks all the way down. Here's what I mean by that. Think about the last time you heard about a scientific study. Like you were reading something in the New York Times about like a new drug for diabetes or something, right? More than likely it was done on rats because we do terrible things to rodents, but that's fine. Um, but also because we were only studying male rats in nearly all of those labs because we were kind of treating for a long time the mammalian body as a kind of Mr. Potato Head. Like we're building what's called a model, right? You've probably heard a model for diabetes, a mouse model of Alzheimer's or what have you, right? So what that means is that you have a, a, a model species, usually rats, sometimes it's monkeys, anyway, right? And you're building an understanding of how some part of the body is working. But because female mammals have estrus, you and I might call that the menstrual cycle, right? We have this wave of hormones that goes up and down at semi-regular intervals, right, in our bodies. Um, well, that's really messy. That's complicated. That's hard to kind of pull out of your data and say, is this or is this influencing something? So one way to deal with it is just not studying females and just kind of crossing your fingers and being like, this is cool, right? It's not cool, actually, because where do you even get your pharmaceutical drug targets, right? You get them from basic science. You get them from how you understand the body before you even say, how do I intervene on this body? So by the time you get to biomedical science, you're starting clinical trials. You may not have been testing things on females at all. And then females are radically under-enrolled in phase one cl clinical trials, okay? That's true even before we changed the rules to allow females. For a long time, we were really worried about messing up babies, right? There's kind of this thing where we gave a bunch of babies from people who were in clinical trials who happened to get pregnant, a bunch of birth defects. That wasn't great. So if then we said, okay, nobody who's female should be in clinical trials because of the babies. And then it turns out, oh, wait, that's most of a female's life. Uh, I guess the women can come back in. Right. But the, the, the central story is still females are radically under-enrolled. So you get drugs on the market that may never have been tested on female bodies at all. And what are those effects? Okay. Well, opioid drugs is a big one. It turns out that female patients, even if they're the same height and weight as a male patient, okay, it's not a mass problem. It's not a weight problem, just a sex difference problem they tend to need a little bit more of opioid drugs to get that same level of pain effect, right? That same pain relief. And the slope of how the effect leaves the body also turns out to look a little bit different in female patients than male patients, which then makes females, which is to say people like me, a little more vulnerable to certain kinds of addiction patterns, right? Say you're given a drug and you're told, um, don't take too much of it and take it at a certain interval. Oh, but you need a little bit more of it to feel the same amount of pain relief that you're told you should feel. And everyone knows female pain doesn't matter. So, well, there you go. Right. Sorry, that's a sexism problem. But you sitting with your drugs, you're just sitting with your own head and saying, do I need more of this than you do? OK, but then the effect leaves your body a little bit sooner. Maybe you take your next dose mm, half hour before it says, like at six hour interval, maybe you take it five and a half. Maybe you take it at five. What you're doing is you're front loading an amount of drug in your system and norming to that amount, which is exactly what you do if you're vulnerable to addiction and then develop an addiction, right? 
Would have been good to know that before some of these meds were on the market. We're learning about it after the fact. So what would be the effect of bringing more sex equality into medical training? For for instance, as you write in your book, how would the opioid crisis, how would have that been different if we did have more equality when it came to the sex of the people who are being tested medically? Oh, man. I mean, the short answer to that is that we would have radically reduced suffering. I'll just let that sit with you a little while. So many more people uh, would have suffered less. That's a good thing. That would be great. We wouldn't have even known that that would be possible until we started retrospectively looking at the data and understanding how these things work, going back into the lab and saying, what's up? Oh, it's a liver story. Turns out our livers metabolize these drugs differently if our liver has a different sex. Okay, but so that's one of the radical things. Another radical thing is simply, um, well, fewer babies would be born addicted to opioid drugs. Just that. Right. Um, It's not the case that all people who could be pregnant are pregnant all the time, but some of us are right. And some of us are then already, unfortunately, uh, suffering from an addiction. Many of those patients are then put on methadone because it can be dangerous to both the mother and the uh, offspring to go off of an opioid drug that that body's addicted to too quickly. So there are many things that are done and there are many clinicians doing their absolute best to mop up this horrible, horrible crisis. But the big takeaway is simply that we would have reduced suffering. And that's one of those things about making sure that we're doing everything we can to have a full understanding of what a drug does in a body. It's not simply that, you know, we have a more intellectual understanding of things. It's also that you don't know the amount of suffering you could reduce until you find out that it could, right? So the better thing is simply always to have a fuller picture. And it's usually not that someone is a bad actor. It's usually not the case that clinicians are trying to underserve women. It's true that women and girls are radically understudied and undercared for in every sense of woman, in every sense of what those words could mean. Um, But it's also true that simply missing part of the picture makes that more likely to happen. So is the male bias, the male norm to people who are researchers or anybody within healthcare fields, is it, you said that this is not intentional, is it invisible to them? And if it is invisible to them, yet it is so pervasive, what does that say about the male norm and its impact on our healthcare services? Well, one thing I would say is that things are getting better. It's just that the gaps are so huge. It's kind of like the Grand Canyon. You're like, is that a valley or is that a massive hole in the ground? It's both, right? You know, um, so the rules are changing. The NIH has put out some new rules saying now, instead of justifying why you have females, you're justifying why you don't. That's a big flip right? Um, There are still enough loopholes in the system to drive trucks through. We have to keep our foot on the pedal. You know, we can't rest on our laurels in any kind of massive social change. You got to say, we can't celebrate our small victories for too long because then we become complacent and then there's fallback and and we, we don't have that forward progress the way we need to. But there are some really, really wonderful labs doing excellent work right now. But like with anything, I mean, the scientific community is made of people 
just like you and me. And people learn things over time. And sometimes they learn it from one direction, sometimes another. This is a massive shift. This is a paradigm shift in biology. It's changing how we understand what the hell mammals are, how our bodies even work. So that means, you know, step by step, one direction or another, they're learning, right? They're learning how much it could matter. And the more data we've got, the more we'll figure out this part matters or this part doesn't, right? Like maybe it doesn't matter that ibuprofen works one way or another, but maybe Tylenol, which is metabolized through the liver, uh, should have a little bit more of a warning around female takers of the drug. Like, you know, we're gonna figure that out simply by studying this stuff over time. So would the uh, would the outcome of, let's say more, again, uh, equality when it comes to medical testing, would that you were just talking about the major changes that are taking place right now? Would that be not just evolutionary, but revolutionary when it came to our understanding, society's understanding, as well as medical healthcare professionals' understanding of women? I mean, I think so. It might be a bit biased. I just took a, about a decade to write a book about. Um, I would say yes. I mean, one of the ways in which we tell the story of, you know, cis womanhood is that it's all about the babies because, you know, we're ultimately fulfilled by having them and that our bodies are just geared towards having them and that's where happiness comes from. And then you get some bad stories about oxytocin, right? But the thing is, it turns out that we're terrible at making babies, like as a species, like we actually suck at this compared to other primates. We're kind of among the worst, like maybe squirrel monkeys, but otherwise pretty much we're the absolute worst among primates. Um, at making offspring. And when you think about it that way, when you realize how dangerous it is for human females to have babies, to become pregnant at all, that our pregnancies and births and postpartum recoveries are longer and harder and more prone to crippling or even deadly complications than they are for the other cousins of ours, right? Then you say, oh, wait, okay. So maybe it's not about, you know, uh, it's our destiny to make babies. Maybe it's a, it's about how evolution has provided us with some fail-safes to survive this crap. Maybe that's the thing, right? Maybe actually, as a whole species, not only should we be grateful for anyone who does such a ridiculous thing, like a patently inadvisable thing to do to your body, but maybe also we definitely owe them more support than we're providing them, uh, particularly in this country where as soon as a woman gives birth, we're like, cool, see ya, later, bye. Yeah, that's a very interesting way in which society can change from having better and greater uh, medical knowledge. We are speaking with researcher, scholar, writer, author of Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution, Kat Bohannon. You can follow Kat on X at Kat Bohannon. You can find out more about her and her most recent writing at catbohannon.com. You write that it's not that top flight scientists still think female bodies were made when God pulled a rib from or pulled a rib from Adam's side, but the assumption that being sexed is simply a matter of sex organs, that somehow being female is just a minor tweak on a platonic form, is a bit like that old Bible story of, the, of Genesis, and that story is a lie. How is being sexed more than your sex organs? Because I've, been, I've seen those on the right, far right, who claim that your sex organs define your sex. And I have spoken with people on several occasions who don't understand being sexed as more than sex organs. So how is, I know it's a real basic question, but so how is being sexed more than only your sex organs? 
Oh, man. Um, well, for one thing, uh, your uh, gentle, furry little companions nestling somewhere near your thigh are a very small part of your body. They're influential. They uh, shape quite a lot of things, more than one would like, one imagine. Um, but, but they are a small part. Yeah. So, for example, your liver. You don't often think about your liver, but it takes up a huge part of your torso, um, majorly influential in your life day to day, not just about having that lovely weekend where you may or may not have been inebriated, but that too. Um, but your liver actually is a deeply important part of how you go about being alive, man. It even is a massive part of how you understand what time of day it is. Uh, it turns out that we used to think that there was a certain part of the brain that kind of told the rest of your body what time of day it was. Uh, it influences your clockwork, which influences what kinds of genes your cells are expressing at one point of time or another. Um, but it turns out that while your liver doesn't have a pronoun, it definitely does have a sex. Thousands of genes are differently expressed in your liver cells, depending on whether or not those liver cells have a Y chromosome. And that's shaping not only how you literally experience your day, females have a, a very day dependent, a circadian cycle of their sex hormones. Uh, part of the reason women who go through menopause uh, tend to get more night sweats at night is, uh, well, that's actually when your estradiol tends to plummet. That's the bottom of the trough of that graph. You know what I mean? Uh, and then it goes up during the day. But it's also true that if you're male, your liver is then metabolizing the drugs you take differently, which is likewise influenced according to what sex that liver has. So you're not thinking about your liver most of the time, unless you're you know, a person who's dealing with a certain amount of alcohol, but it's actually shaping your day in ways you wouldn't expect. And while that is tied to your testicles, it's not just your testicles is really fascinating. This book is it was just blowing my mind throughout. You mentioned anesthesia and what they've learned about mm. anesthesia and how anesthesia ha uh, wears off on women faster than men, which is a bad situation to be in if you're in the midst of a surgery. So uh, even but even that, even what they learned about anesthesia and women waking up early, potentially during surgery, even yep. that they learned by accident, as you explain. You write, they didn't really ask the question. They realized after the fact that they should have asked the question. Not asking the question is dangerous. So just to emphasize this point, Kat, what is the question they should be asking? Is there something different about being sexed here in this thing we're looking at? If being sexed matters, how does that change what we see? Why assume that sex doesn't matter? Again, we're talking not about behavior here. We're talking about basic physiological stuff, how your cells are working in one set of tissue or another, right? If being sexed matters, how does it matter and why? And if it doesn't matter, is that different here than in another part of the body, right? The general assumption for a very long time was that being sex didn't matter, that you had a basic Mr. Potato Head and you could kind of hot swap some stuff and, and you know, unless you were dealing with reproduction, this wasn't a big deal. Well, it turns out that being sexed may matter all the way down to basic cellular repair, even how your brain cells go about living or dying. Here's something. Now, if you were to hit somebody in the head with a tire iron, I know it's tempting, but please never do this, not just because it's illegal, but like, just don't do that. But of people who show up in the ER with massive traumatic brain injuries, 
If that body is female, she has a better prognosis, even if it's precisely the same injury. And part of that might be not simply her social support system, but that's huge for any kind of recovery from a TBI, recovery from anything, really. We don't live as islands. We live in our social networks and they help us heal, sometimes in overt ways, sometimes in subtle ways. But let's say you've been hit in the head with a tire iron and you're male. Well, it turns out that male neurons go about responding to inflammatory signals a little bit differently it turns out their response to uh, apoptosis-inducing signal. Trust me, I know you said bio isn't your strength. In other words, how they hear the signal like, oh, a bunch of cells nearby are dying, and I as a cell am going to choose to die or not, which turns out to be a thing, right? There's a lot of hairy carry in, in cells. Well, males are going to develop bigger lesions. They're going to have more of that inflammatory cascade. They're not going to wall off the site of injury quite as well for one reason or another, probably at the cellular level, than a female brain might do, right? You wouldn't think that. You wouldn't think that because we think about this female body thing as like a more fragile thing, a more vulnerable thing, right? But actually, in some cases, it's quite the opposite. Simply being male makes you as a mammal and, well, as a human being, which is also a mammal, vulnerable in ways that we don't often expect. You write that as it turns out, women's fat isn't the same as men's. Each fat deposit on our body is a little bit different, but women's hip, buttock, and upper thigh fat, or gluteofemoral fat, is chock full of unusual lipids. Long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, or LCPUFAs, think omega-3, like think fish oil. Our livers are bad at making these kinds of fats from scratch, so we need to get most of them from our diet. And bodies that can become pregnant need them so they can make baby brains and retinas. Is fat healthy, and is any societal pressure to not be fat bad? for women's health. I, the bigger question is, does any collective lack of understanding of women's health lead to societal pressures that are bad for women's health, like concerns over women's weight? I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's, let's just, you know, do the short answer first and say, yeah, fat phobia sucks and diet culture sucks and just having boobs and being told what to eat or not eat just sucks on every level, just every level. This is just bad, okay? I don't know of any person with ovaries in the United States that I've ever met that hasn't been on a diet regardless, regardless you know, of her, her baseline fat content or weight. So obviously that is really bad. But what blew my mind when I was working on this book, when I was working on Eve, is that it turns out that um, our fat isn't just like where we keep our cake, okay? Our subcutaneous fat depots distributed throughout our body um, are actually so important for our basic homeostasis, so important for how we go about being alive and so complexly involved. It has its hand in our immune system, yes, in our digestive system, but also in our endocrine system. And in, you know, our basic, it generates its own hormones as well as responding to. It's so important and complex, in other words, that now people who study this stuff aren't even calling it a part of another system. They're calling it its own organ system. In other words, my fat's a freaking organ. So when I look in the mirror and I take a pinch of my big fat butt, 
which I tell you, you know, people who are female and present as femmes, we do this a lot. We're just, we're grabbing our asses all the time. It's a thing. Anyway, so when I'm doing that, what I'm actually doing, I had always thought when I was a kid, I was grabbing a part of my kind of cosmetic whatever, you know, that I did or didn't fit into being attractive. What I'm actually doing is grabbing a thing that's kind of a little bit like my liver. Like what I'm looking at in the mirror is a barely visible part of my fat organ tucked underneath my skin, right? That still shares a lot of the same properties with livers, in fact, that it has that regenerative property, like you know how it grows back? Well, that's the same reason that it, you don't have to transplant a whole liver. You just transplant a lobe and it'll regrow in situ. Kind of crazy, but that's because the liver and adipose tissue evolved from the same primordial organ called the fat body, okay? So when I look in the mirror and I understand that, story from recent research and from evolutionary models, I go, holy crap, okay, this isn't cosmetic at all. I'm looking at a freaking organ, okay? So maybe that should change how I think about my relationship to my big fat butt that I pinch in the mirror, because that's a thing, right? That maybe I should think about this is deeply involved in how I go about being alive. And we should think about things like obesity as something that has to do with an organ behaving one way or another, right? Not simply this is a brain doing a feeding behavior, but like this is an organ, okay? And how do we keep this organ as healthy as we can? Because every organ in our body is by definition valuable and important. That is absolutely fascinating. You also, you give this list of questions that you were surprised that nobody had asked and more so that nobody's answered. You write how you hope to provide the latest answers to women's most basic questions about their bodies. As it turns out, those basic questions are producing some truly exciting science. Why do we men menstru menstruate? Why do women live longer? Why are we more likely to get Alzheimer's? Why do girls score better at every academic subject than boys until puberty when suddenly our score drop through the floor is there really such a thing as the female brain and why seriously why do we have to sweat through our sheets every night when we hit menopause were you surprised to find out that these questions were not yet answered or apparently even asked and the fact that these questions were not asked what should that tell us about the way that even healthcare understands the female body oh I mean, it's a mixed bag, okay? Like I'm a researcher, right? So on the one hand, when you find questions that haven't been asked, this is like a party for us. We're like, woohoo! now I'm gonna go down my rabbit hole and I'm gonna do some experiments and yeah, right? So like we love it when things aren't known because that means we're gonna go about the business of knowing it. That's kind of our whole deal, you know what I mean? We're like the deeply curious creatures. We're like the two-year-old that's always asking why, like we don't outgrow that, you know what I mean? So on the one hand, I was really excited that there's just so much cool new research happening in the biology of sex differences. On the other hand, because I am a moral person and it's not hard to see the human impact, I am devastated that we still don't have sufficient answers to so many of these things. Because even in basic science, like the liver thing, like if we don't have a really good model of sex differences in the liver, we're missing half of, I don't know, all mammals. Like, and obviously then it impacts human lives today. You know, if we, so, so I'm excited about all this cool new liver research. Actually, I am, I'm into that, right? On the other hand, I'm like, oh God, we really need to get a handle on this liver thing, 
right? Because I want people to be able to have confidence in the drugs that they take and the care they receive, knowing that it's absolutely true, and this is true, the vast majority of clinicians do wanna take you seriously. The vast majority of medical people are here to make you better, right? They give up most of their 20s for this stuff, okay? You know, they go to med school for a long time. Most doctors really want you to just be well and are doing everything they can to get you there. But we need to arm them with better information so that they can better treat you in the clinic. And if we haven't studied sex differences sufficiently, well, they're only working with a, a, a partial set of advice, right? So, um, so I'm both excited and surprised and devastated all the time. I'm all up in my feelings with this stuff. <laughs> you write the majority of what you and I call evolution, what we're debating about endlessly in litigation and fitful bursts on op-ed pages and conflicting textbooks in far-flung communities. This thing that has caused so much trouble represents only 13% of the time there's been any life on Earth at all. Once you start thinking about deep time, you quickly realize that human bodies are new because all bodies are pretty new. Do you think that newness affects the way that we understand the human body? Oh, it must inevitably. It must inevitably. Okay, the reason we study rats in a lab, okay, isn't just that we care less about rats, although it's true. I have seen a rat crawl out of my toaster in New York, okay? I was at the end of the hall, you know, had a little kitchen at the other end, saw my toaster, saw a little furry body come up out of the slot. I threw that toaster away because that is the only right choice right? You're not, there's no cleaning of that thing. I did not set out rat traps because, well, I didn't have any roaches because the rat was clearly eating the roaches. And in New York, you make choices, okay? You probably do this in Chicago too. You make choices and these are the right choices sometimes. So yes, I get that we don't like rats as much, but the real reason we, stu we study rats is fundamentally because we assume that something would be conserved, that these basic kind of mammalian bodies probably have analogs in human bodies, that a lot of how bodies work stays kind of the same over time. So if you find something going on in a rat, there's a very good chance that if you take it and then study something in a non-human primate in like a macaque, it might well be there. There might be an analog and all the way up into human bodies as well, right? That's the reason that we study these other mammals. It's not just that we have it in for rats, for things, you know, but also because we assume that it would be then conserved. So you also your question just there. What's Come that? Oh, thank you. Uh, so uh, you also write that I invite you to think of yourself, to think about where your body comes from, how the evolution of biological sex shapes it, whether you identify as a man, a woman, or another gender, and how those stories are embedded in humanity's everyday life. In her essay for Annie Leibovitz's book, uh, Women, Susan Sontag wrote that any large-scale picturing of women belongs to the ongoing story of how women are presented and how they are invited to think of themselves. You write that w uh, when women think about where their bodies come from via evolution, it raises the question of women there is no equivalent question of men. Men, unlike women, are not a work in progress. What do you mean by men not being a work in progress? Are women evolving more than men? Do they always evolve more than men? Is, is that what the case is? In this case, what I meant in that moment of the introduction chapter was that, well, Sontag was brilliant, um, but of course she wasn't thinking like a biologist because why would she? That'd be weird. Um, all of us are equally evolving all the time. Okay, evolution doesn't 
stop. We're not frozen in time. Our bodies have continued to change from the beginning of our species with some patterns becoming more dominant and uh, some less actually. Even human milk actually uh, shows evidence of long periods of infection as we became uh, more social and more urbanized. I talk about that in the milk chapter, right? That um, even the kinds of milk that we make is now tailored to help our babies survive whole ranges of massive infection, precisely because we stopped living in little furry bands and started living in deep, complex societies where, well, we're really gross and we spot, you know, swap spit and mucus. And I don't know if you've ever been to a daycare, but like we're kind of gross, you know, animals, right? So our bodies have long adapted to our lifestyles, right? Evolution doesn't stop. But what is true is that because we have for so long thought of, well, cis women and girls, and then just the whole idea of womanhood as this kind of side note, you know, the side character, this fundamentally less important story that surely wasn't driving anything in the deep history of humanity and all of the animals that came before us that produced the bodies we live in. Well, then inevitably, the more we turn to that long neglected story, and long neglected data sets, even generating the data sets, well, that means that how we think of that story is changing. And it has more change to do precisely because we hadn't been thinking about it for so long, right? So it's more like that. You mentioned many Eves, obviously. Uh, you write that Habilis, Homo Habilis, from 2.8 to 1.5 million years ago, she is the Eve of simple tools and associated intelligent sociality, a prolific tool user. Habilis coexisted in Africa with Homo erectus for half a million years. Her fossils were found at Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. You also mention Homo erectus. She is the eve of more complex tools and more complex intelligent sociality. We'll look to her for one of the origins of our more human-like brain. And then you mentioned sapiens, Homo sapiens, roughly 300,000 years ago, to the present mm -hmm. eve of human language, human menopause, and modern human love and sexism. How yeah. is modern love or sexism, an evolutionary trait, and how does that change our understanding of evolution? Ooh, so I had to do that chapter, okay? So this is the last chapter of the book, precisely because everyone, once they found out what book I was doing, was like, all right, you know what I really wanna know? I wanna know about sex. I wanna know a lot about sex, and I want you to tell me because now it's your job. And I'm like, well, all right, I mean, Dan Savage does a job, but I guess if you're really, and they're like, no, 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 it's your turn. You need to tell me about the sexing. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I get this question a lot, which is, you know, in ancient humanity, um, were we more like mm, King Solomon and his wives, which is more like a gorilla, you know, one big male and a whole bunch of females, you know, um, protected by slash fawning over. Um, yeah. Uh, or were we more like, you know, this whole poly thing, which actually is a lot like chimpanzees, which is all the sex all the time with kind of everybody. Well, actually, that's more like bonobos, but the chimps get it, get it on too, right? Or were we more like wolves? Actually, a common misunderstanding of wolves is this idea of the alpha male and other males competing. Actually, in the wild, most wolf packs are, wolf packs are uh, single families. The alpha male and female are actually the mom and the dad. And then it's like, you know, the subfamilies underneath it. Um, so it's actually not that weird that the younger males aren't having sex with, you know, their mom in a wolf pack. Anyway, um, 
it's just kind of like that seems straightforward. But anyway, um, so was that the model then of our mating patterns, right? And the funny thing is, is that, well, we know a lot about human history, not nearly enough, but a lot. And we're getting better at looking at other cultures instead of assuming that ancient Greece is where things started. No, 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 no. We are very diverse and we are worldwide, but you can't actually look at all of those human patterns now or even in the last few thousand years and say, this is what we've always done. If our species is 300,000 years old, that's just our species, right? Never mind all the hominins that came before us. Well, you can't say that that's actually a whole lot of history. The, everything we call human history is actually a scrap of human history. You know what I mean? Our species is older that, than that. There are big gaps in our understanding, but there are things that bodies do that leave a record, right? Because actually other primates that have certain mating patterns tend to have certain physical features that are associated with those mating patterns. And for that, uh, okay, so that chapter, what I did is I said, well, what story is written on the body, the human body, Homo sapiens? Can we tell anything about our ancestral mating patterns just by looking at our bodies? Actually, yes, we can tell a lot. We can tell a whole heck of a lot. For example, we say, okay, human males are on average a little bit bigger than human females, but compared to other primates, no, we're actually very, very similar between the sexes. Like a chimp is much bigger if that chimp is male versus a chimp female. And the gorilla, oh my goodness, harem style mating in primates, the guy is huge. He's massive compared to the female. It's just like, you know, a couch versus a chair, people. This is just a much bigger body. Why? Because he's competing for females, right? And he's defending those females against other males. This isn't to say the females aren't having sneaky sex. Actually, they're having a heck of a lot of sneaky sex, like really quite a lot. Like a lot of those babies are not actually from the dominant male. She went off and she came back, okay? But nonetheless, that's what that body looks like. So actually, probably we weren't a lot like King Solomon and his many wives. And there are some features, but I don't know the rules for radio that I could talk about with male genitalia that make it less likely uh, that human males were more like chimpanzees. Um, for one thing, uh, well, I can say this, uh, your balls would be bigger, okay? You're just, they would be, they would be significantly larger. Like a chimp, chimpanzee's uh, sack and what it contains is just massive. Uh, compared to a human male's. And it's because he literally needs to blitzkrieg uh, a cervix, you know, with his material to compete with other males who might be coming along literally 15 minutes later, right? It's just a whole different sex scenario for a chimpanzee male trying to have babies than it is for human males. Um, and, and that's something that you see in your body still today. One last question for you, Kat. I've really enjoyed our conversation. We have been speaking with researcher, scholar, writer, author of Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution, Kat Bohannon. This is her first book. You can follow Kat on X at Kat Bohannon and find out more about her by going to, and her most recent essays by going to her website, katbohannon.com. One last question for you, Kat, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. It's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. As the research continues, apparently, from the reading I did of your book, uh, it seems to be that we are constantly finding evidence that our ancestors were a lot more sophisticated and intelligent than we might think. 
Are we repeatedly revealing that we have underestimated those that came before us? And if so, what do you think that reveals about us, that we have this predisposition to thinking our ancestors were a lot dumber than we think they were? Oh, well, hmm. that's the classic question, actually. That isn't much of a question from hell. It's a, it's a question I usually enjoy. We like to tell stories about how special we are. Aren't we just so special, you and me? We're just awesome, aren't we? We're just so smart and talented and, you know, spaceships and stuff. Humanity, what an amazing success story, right? I would say that we're radically over-impressed with our spaceships. We're radically over-impressed with our cities. We are radically over-impressed with the human brain in general. Other species have incredibly complex sociality. Other species have incredibly complex societies. The fact that we are able to... Um, smelt and, you know, go on and forth from that is cool. That's cool. I don't know that it's fundamentally more impressive than like a termite mound, frankly, but it's, it's cool. It's all right. It's all right. Um, I think, I think the big takeaway is always uh, in evolution. And anytime you think about deep time, we are at once um, incredibly uh, remarkable for our rarity that, you know, there has been nothing like us ever before, and eventually there'll be nothing like us after us, right? Um, but then we are also in this wash of deep time, which is to say, you know, the history of life on Earth is just so much bigger than the human species. And what will come in life on Earth after the human species, because inevitably there will be an after, is likewise quite a bit bigger. Uh, than anything we think about in our day-to-day -day lives. So whenever you think about deep time, you always have this moment where you are both in awe and incredibly humbled <laughs> because actually we're really, really small. Kat, thank you so much for being on our show. This has truly been a pleasure. Thank you so much and uh, enjoy your, your new year, 2024. Thank you very much for being on the show. No problem at all. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If our conversation with Kat Bohannon made you think about women in a new way, or you started thinking about it again later today, you start thinking about this in the conversation we had just now, you start thinking about it later on in your day, or you bring it up with a friend or a coworker, then that means that the conversation had an impact on you. So please show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support on our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. The talk last week with Ajay Singh Chaudhary on the thousands of times the word resilience comes up in the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change IPCC report, as in how much capitalism-driven status quo reinforcing climate change will humanity tolerate. The whole notion of resilience, it made me very, very angry. The idea that the plan now in addressing climate change is to do nothing but measure how much suffering change is, or how much, how much suffering we will put up with so the 1% can remain in their wasteful McMansions and so they can continue all their climate change-causing practices 
and fly on their chartered jets to their many homes. The idea that the plan is to do nothing but be resilient as capitalism devours nature because change bad, that condemns not only ourselves but generations to come to a life of more and more and more misery, that sounds pretty awful. So, if that's the plan, resilience is not for me. My rant last week was about the miserable lives that are being planned for our future, where nothing changes but the climate. Also, there have been some questions lately about whether the actions by Israel and its military in Gaza are war crimes, let alone acts of genocide. But here on This Is Hell, we've been asking those questions for a very, very long time. Those exact same questions. I mean, you would not be surprised to see headlines today like America's hidden role in Hamas's rise to power. Or virtually the entire Congress supports Israel's war crimes in Gaza. But here's the thing. Those two headlines I just mentioned, those are not headlines from right now. Those are headlines and stories we discussed here on the show back on not January 17th, 2024, January 17th, 2009, 15 freaking years ago, when we spoke with Dr. Steven Zunas, professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco, where he chairs the program in Middle Eastern Studies, while the rest of the media was turning a blind eye to everything that was happening in Gaza, to everything that was happening to the Palestinians. We were talking about it. We're just a nickel and dime operation. Maybe that's why. If we were some corporate-funded organization, we wouldn't be able to report on stories like this. Stephen is also the author of Tinderbox, U.S. Middle Eastern Policy and the Roots of Terrorism, which the media should have written because it's one of the most prescient books on what happened in the region during this 21st century. But the only way you can hear me go off on the disturbing plan of resilience just to save the status quo and the rich, where we all suffer so the rich can stay rich and capitalism can continue its destructive ways, as well as a talk on war crimes in Gaza that sounds like it was ripped from today's headlines but actually took place 15 years ago, is by subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. By doing so, you also get a discount code word for all our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. But wait, there's more. As a Patreon subscriber, you get a sneak peek at every week's question from hell as we announce the following week's question from hell during our Patreon podcast. And on Patreon, you can post your own question from hell for me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host. I will not read the questions that are posted. However, whoever is producing that week's Patreon podcast will then select one of the questions, and I will be forced to immediately respond to it without any preparation, extemporaneously, if you will. Will, do you remember what the question from hell for me was last week off the top of your head? Oh, I actually have Patreon on right now. Let me have a look. It was... was, Oh, wow, we have some new ones. It was from Old Grouch. Yeah, it was from Old Grouch who asked... What can defeat fascism in the USA? Oh, yeah. So you, if you want to know what can defeat fascism in the USA, you have to be a Patreon subscriber. Yeah, and Chuck has it all figured yeah, out. I got it all figured out. I'll whiteboard it for you if you want. 
That's all on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we look forward to you all joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell because we are going to add new subscribers only features soon. Patreon patrons will now be getting the opportunity to vote on who they want as guests on the show. That's right. Patreon patrons are now going to be Patreon radio show programmers of This Is Hell as a sign of our continuing appreciation for their support. Again, at patreon.com slash this is hell. Will, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding on Patreon? This week's question from hell once again comes from listener Jen D on the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Question from hell is Which mega rich person would you eat first? I bet they all taste terrible. Oh, I know. That's, yeah. Ugh. Um, actually, Cat had a pretty good answer to that. I will show you uh, off air. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there some way we can share it on Instagram or something? Or oh, yeah. 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 Okay. I right. took a screen grab. Okay. So, cool. Yeah. I don't think she'll mind. Uh, all right. On Patreon. Laddie O kicks us off answering the question, which mega rich person should would you eat first? Laddie replies, Bernard Arnault stitched up inside a Louis Vuitton Mar- Marceau chain handbag like a haggis. Okay. Ooh, that's gruesome. It's, it's like, I really wish I had a faster working computer over here. Look <laughs> up these people. Yeah, right. <laughs> to which uh, David S. Re- responded, I was also thinking, Arno, I love French cuisine. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> I do love French cuisine, though. Yes, I do, too. It's uh, It's got all the goodies. Yeah. Um, Adi answers, this question warrants a buffet. Ugh. <sighs> Yeah. Nice uh, buffet. That's a, a good groaner. There. Oh, cool. cow. Wow, I hope Adi's somebody's dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. Craig J answers, do late night TV talk show hosts count as the mega rich? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, Craig, feel free to tell us <laughs> which one of those you would prefer to eat. They all look gross and pasty. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, old Grouch says, "Ew!" With lots of e's and w's. All right then. Uh, Mason W answers, "Scrooge McDuck." <laughs> <laughs> he would be great cold pressed. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Or maybe Peking style. Oh, good. I like that. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck. Who was the, who answered that? <laughs> that was Mason W. Oh, man, he's been hitting it out of yeah, the park been for a couple fire. of months. Yeah. Mason's on fire. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly would also be oh, a good yeah, one. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, Chris B says, depends which ones are gluten-free. <laughs> Very picky yeah. in his cannibalism. Hey, man. Sweet, crispy. <laughs> it, it could be celiacs. Yeah, could be. Um, essential <laughs> re- responds, city group. <laughs> Just the whole city group. <laughs> and then finally, Tom H., Responds with the pretentious little dweeb, Richie Rich. <laughs> See, that's good too. Yeah, good job. Everybody. He looks uh, very uh, fatty. He does. I bet he'd be tasty. I uh, know. A little, 
Rich. Yeah, Rich. can't cook them too fast. But. <laughs> you can't. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Al again wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. What was the question from Hell again for this week? Read it one more time there, Will. Uh, which mega-rich person would you eat first? And you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, our Facebook group page, Welcome to Hellhole. You can direct message it to us via X. You can email it to us. You can post it in our Discord community. Uh, and uh, you can post this still at our Patreon account at patreon.com slash this is hell if you are a subscriber. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Sebastian Vuppert and the past inside the present. Will, what's Seb talking about this week? Uh, Seb's really going for it. Uh, <laughs> this Seb, is bad news. Seb looks at the history of one of the world's <laughs> truly most hellish texts of the recent centuries, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. By the way, I'm surprised how few people have canceled their subscription because of sub segments. No, I know. <laughs> I was just talking to him about that, asking if he's had any, uh, you know, emails. Or it's anything. crazy what people are upset about on this show and what they're not upset about. I can never predict it. Yeah, I it's can wild. never ever predict it whatsoever. But. <sighs> People are happy about <laughs> Seb's work, so hey, good on you, Seb. He's putting in good context. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Speaking of history, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history on January 30th, 1956. 68 years ago this week. In Montgomery, Alabama. Never a good start to this week in rotten history. Montgomery, Alabama has a lot of rotten history. The 27-year-old Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., leader of an ongoing city bus boycott, was speaking to a congregation of 2,000 people at First Baptist Church when he learned that his house had been bombed. He rushed home and was greeted by a crowd gathered outside the damaged house. Some of the people had weapons and were ready to use them in his defense. Thankfully, social media was not yet invented or the situation would have been a lot worse. Dr. King quickly determined that his wife, Coretta Scott King, and his daughter Yolanda, both home when the bomb went off, were unharmed. After the Montgomery mayor and the police chief both addressed the crowd pleading for calm, Dr. King then spoke, advising everyone to put away their weapons and to adhere to the principle of nonviolent protest. The city of Montgomery promised him police protection and offered a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest of the bomber. I know, it doesn't sound like much, right? But, you know, it's 1956, so that $500, I mean, for those of you who are wondering, that's a little over $5,000 in today money, today's money. So, in other words, and unsurprisingly, the city of Montgomery did not put up much of a reward for the bomber of the King family home. So, a bomber was never apprehended or charged, but maybe if that had been $5,000 in 1956 money, who knows? Over the next 12 years, King would endure assassination and blackmail attempts, countless death threats and FBI surveillance until he was finally assassinated, murdered in 1968. Because in the United States, if you lead people to react non-violently to unfairness, to hate, to inequality, to racism, to poverty, and the war machine that is the U.S. economy. There are plenty of Americans, even powerful ones, 
even among law enforcement, who will want you freaking dead. Because that's democracy. Also in Rotten History, on February 1st, 1969, 55 years ago this week, at the Metropolitan Opera in New York during a live nationwide radio broadcast of Donizetti's Lucia de Lamamor, the highly acclaimed 36-year-old soprano Anna Mofo was in trouble. Radio listeners had already noticed that her voice sounded wobbly and coarse, how they would know in, I guess, 1969. Sure, radios were good enough. And they also noticed that her tone was off. As she reacted for a reached, sorry, as she reached for a crucial high E flat, listeners were shocked to hear what sounded more like an ugly scream than a well-formed note, although I kind of would like to hear that. Mofo's disastrous voice vocal breakdown was attributed to overwork. Opera soloists are like baseball pitchers. Their craft makes unnatural demands on the human body, and they need a few days rest after each performance. Performance. Who knew? I didn't. But Mofo, love that name, known for her looks as well as her singing, had caught the attention of Hollywood and mainstream showbiz. And her greedy managers, including her first husband, had persuaded her to accept more work than she could safely handle. She endured a heroic travel schedule and TV appearances with the likes of Jerry Lewis and Ed Sullivan, which helped to boost her fame, sell records, and bring in the cash. But the activity strained and exhausted her voice when she should have been resting it. After her very public vocal collapse, a long hiatus, several years of physical rehab, Mofo finally managed to make something of a comeback. But her voice was never the same, and she never again reached the career heights she had once known. She died in 2006. And who knew Rotten History could also be pretty freaking sad. Finally, in Rotten History, on February 3rd, 1972, 52 years ago this week, Iran was hit by an apocalyptic winter cyclone and blizzard, which over the next seven days would dump almost 28 feet, or 8 meters, of snow onto the northwest, central, and southern parts of the country. Snow is something that we have here in the States, I'm sorry, smells something that we here in the States might rarely associate with Iran. But even Iran's capital, which is in the southern part of the country, averages eight to nine days of snowfall each year with average annual snowfall of over three inches. The winter cyclones and blizzard took down telephone and power lines in Iran, crushed motor vehicles and buried thousands of villages Rescue workers and food trucks found it impossible to reach many areas where people who had avoided being buried or frozen were huddled in their houses, starving to death as their supplies ran out. Army helicopters flew into the raging storm, dropping food packages, most of which disappeared into the giant snowdrifts before people could find them. Much later, responders would find a landscape littered with frozen corpses and entire towns obliterated. More than 4,000 people were killed, making the Iranian blizzard the most deadly winter storm in recorded history. And if somebody had asked me in a bar bet the country that had the most deadly blizzard in recorded history, I definitely would not have guessed Iran 
and I definitely would have lost the bar bet, but now you can win a bar bet by doing the same bet with somebody sitting next to you drinking. I would suggest you do it with somebody who's been drinking a lot. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hal Will, who are our upcoming guests on this week's show. Our next guest will be journalist who specializes in the Middle East, Seamus Malek, uh, sorry, Malika Fazali, who will talk to us about his Baffler article, More Fog, More War, The Brutal Logic of the U.S. Attacks on Yemen. Yeah, that's going to be really creepy because uh, it's all about how the war is escalating, and it's escalating quickly and unnecessarily. Oh, yeah, and they're already calling for us to just uh, attack, Iran. attack Iran already, too. Yeah. So that's neat. And we've got the right president uh, in power right now. Oh, yeah. He's got a really stiff spine who's willing to stand up to the military-industrial complex. Totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's an election year, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, Good Lord. Way to go, guys. Uh, yeah, they kind of own gold on that one. Yeah, they did. Um, also on tomorrow's show, um, Jeff Dorchin delivers a moment of truth. If you can pronounce this whole Oh, tease. I looked it up. I learned a new word today. All right. This week, Jeff radiosinates on the rapid rise in irrationalization, and I looked that word up, and it means to form a judgment through logic and reason. Oh, well, there you go. So there you oh, go. Look at that. Hmm, who knew? Yeah. We're always building uh, everyone's vocabulary on the show. Exactly. And mine included. And then finally, our final guest of next week will be uh, Dr. Maha Hilal, who wrote the Tom Dispatch piece, Israel, the United States and the Rhetoric of the War on Terror, from September 11th, 2001 to October 7th, 2023, and beyond. Maha is a... Uh, founding executive director of the Muslim Counterpublics Lab and author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim. <laughs> oh, wow, that's depressing and true. Uh, thanks to Willipin for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. I gotta take care of that live streaming. This is how office hours are happening this Wednesday, as they do nearly every Wednesday. And they always happen at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. The forecast is pretty much the same as last week, just a little bit warmer with temperatures supposedly going to be in the mid-40s, which is the perfect temperature for hanging around the fire pit out back in the beer garden. So look for me there this and every Wednesday evening during This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. They start around 6 o'clock, and it all happens here in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, a place that is unlike any other part of the city. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.